0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Hello, and thanks again for joining our little weekly podcast. This is Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy, and I do apologise if my tones are not so dulcet this week, as I've left the microphone at home and I've gone travelling, so I'm relying on a laptop microphone. But speaking of dulcet tones, we're joined as usual by David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? Very well, thanks, Charles, and good afternoon to listeners. Good afternoon to you, David. And look, um, special guest this week is John Bradley from the Energy Networks Australia. Have I got that name right, John? You have. Good afternoon, Giles. Hi, uh, David. Yeah, look, and thanks for joining us, Um, uh, John. Look, we've got a bunch of issues that um, we can and will talk to you about, um, specifically with networks and some of the network transformation and the energy transformation that's going on. But look, um, let's start with some of the news of the week. And uh, David, it seems like many people can't take cheap wind and solar as an answer. And we're hearing that still more talk about more coal fuel, um, coal fueled coal-fired generators. This week, Ian McFarlane, the former re- um, energy minister and now the head of the fossil fuel lobby in Queensland, is talking about not one, not two, but three coal-fired generators. What will it take to change this debate, do you think?
1: Well, I, I think if he had to put up the money for them, it might take a little longer. Uh, <laughs> I think you can see all of this as part of the plan. To get the Galilee Basin developed and put coal fire generators up there in North Queensland, where they're not really needed anyway, uh, as part as as a use for the coal. But it, but in any event, um, it, in a sense, the economics are going to prove prove themselves. You can't really blame the coal industry for wanting to uh, foster its own product.
0: Yeah, John, um, you're probably seeing, or your members are certainly seeing, a whole bunch of solar farms being planned. Uh, we saw another couple this week, a big one um, working through development approval in uh, New South Wales, 316 megawatts, another two proposed for Queensland. Um, is there space for all of that for coal fired, new coal-fired generators?
2: Well, you have to wonder about the market prospects of solar versus coal in this environment, and I think it probably goes to the point David made where you'd want to make sure that people are using their own money and putting their own capital at risk rather than these things being taxpayer-funded. But there is a lot of capacity on the network, the transmission network in um, Queensland and New South Wales. So it makes sense that we're seeing those kind of initiatives.
0: Yeah, look, um, let's move on to another um, issue. Um, Arium is an interesting one. Um, that was just announced uh, this late this week, the sale of the steel plant in Wyala. What was really interesting about this and uh was the purchase by um sanji gupta and his firm based um he's a billionaire indian-born billionaire working out of england he's taken over the wayala steelworks or going to take over the wayala steelworks um, owned by arium which went belly up interestingly he's talking about a sustainable green steel plant with renewable energy possibly using pumped hydro storage possibly building some wind and solar possibly expanding the co-generation facilities. Uh, David, this is not the first people that we're talking to turning to wind and solar. Uh, we've had nectar farms last week, we've had Telstra, we've had Sun Metals. Um, the penny seems to be dropping, it's not in the uh, various mining lobby, this penny seems to be dropping with some of the big users.
1: So in South Australia, it's the state to be if you want to use wind energy, and it's probably the state to be at the moment if you want to use pumped hydro. Uh, one of the most interesting renewable projects going on in Australia is the Uh, Development by Energy Australia of the saltwater pumped hydro over there. Now that hasn't got to FID yet, uh, but if it does, it'll it'll provide an answer to a number of problems in South Australia, including the wind curtailment that we saw this week. And we'll start to prove up this concept of deliverable renewable energy uh,
0: for quote unquote baseload type applications. Yeah. John, another interesting thing is the flat um, announcement uh, that came out just this uh, late this week as well. And this is a German battery storage maker. Really interesting here. They've come up with this idea of allowing a fixed fee for people who've got solar and storage. Now, you do have to have a minimum of 5 kilowatts of solar. You've got to have a minimum of um, so, well, one of their battery storage. So you do have to pay up front for that. But they are arguing that if you let's say you've got an existing solar um, rooftop solar, you pay for the storage. That, from the savings that they will make from their flat based fee, a bit like a mobile phone, that'll pay off in five years. And after that, you're basically getting free electricity, but just paying a very flat fee for um, their services and able to use as much from the grid as you like well, within certain parameters. It's a very different way of um, selling energy, isn't it, um, John? Um, it's it's good good news for you guys because everyone keeps on using the network, but um, it's probably less good news for the gen tailors, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it's it's got to be hugely disruptive, and it's basically bringing that European model into the Australian market with something that is really focused on what kind of profile the customer wants, which is predictable and stable, and um, that's, that's obviously very disruptive to existing retailers. I think the other thing about it, though, is that Sonnen clearly see a big part of their value they're going to create by trading those fleets of distributed resources in the wholesale energy market. So there's probably a big challenge for us to make sure we've got a wholesale energy market that allows that to happen.
0: Yes, well we're trying to get some of those changes and we saw a bit of resistance, Um, another couple of um, more delays to this change in uh, one of the key energy market rules, which I guess is about five minute um, settlement, David. Um, Not directly related to this particular thing, but sort of part of the general mix. So a bit of a fight back going on, but geez, it's something for those generators to get their mind around this concept of having these completely amortised rooftop solar and battery storage installations basically producing then free electricity
1: Uh, well electricity that has a zero variable cost
0: well there you go that's what I meant
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and nearly all the models that we look at uh, including the CSIRO ENA model show a much higher penetration of distributed energy as time goes on and and this is going to be a problem or something to be an adjustment that we're all going to have to make and including generators retailers and networks are all going to have to find a way a, how to make a living in this world.
0: Yeah, John, look, um, your CSIRO study, uh, your, sorry, your study between e and um, and the CSIRO, um, really quite brand break, ground, groundbreaking and really quite interesting. And I guess the Sonnen idea plays into what, I guess the big base case of your of the conclusion there was that we're seeing this huge transformation of the grid. And by 2040 or 45 or maybe it was 2050 i can't quite remember when you were predicting a phenomenal amount of rooftop solar a phenomenal amount of battery storage a phenomenal amount of connection through households and businesses and in fact half of all electricity supplied locally and presumably behind the meter um that's a huge change isn't it
2: absolute um revolution really and and i think we're sort of living it now i think the reason why we uh, undertook this study was because the markets um moving now to um create those kind of transformational changes and we've just been talking about some of those announcements but we see you know 25 to 40% of all of the investment decisions um we're talking about you know, approximately 200 to 300 billion dollars worth of investment decisions being made between now and 2050 by effectively customers or their, or their agents rather than by traditional utilities and so much of that energy coming from the edge of the grid. So the question is how do we harness that and send the right signals to get the full value out of all of those resources, not only to avoid wholesale energy costs, but also to keep a grid stable and make sure you've got um, the ability to keep the system secure for customers.
1: So, John, the question that your study didn't really answer, as far as I'm concerned, is is what's going to happen to the value of networks in this world? I mean, the throughput and capacity utilisation of the networks are going to decline in this kind of model. And, and yet, what's going to happen? The costs of the network will probably stay the same. So how are we going to square the circle? Yeah, well, we, we did look really closely at that. David and what we tried to do with the study was to sort
2: of look through the different customer uses of the grid and the customer outcomes they were after whether that was a zero carbon system by 2050 or whether it was um, affordable bills and security but what that study told us was that if you can um, build out the grid in a way where you're relying on those distributed resources and orchestration of those resources so they're responding at the, in the right place in the grid at the right time then you can reduce network charges by 30% compared to today. And that would be huge for the sustainability of our business model when people are talking about death spirals and the end of the grid. If, If we can't control our costs and make sure that we're putting downward pressure on those costs, then we are incentivising a, a death spiral and customers to leave the grid. If we can get those things under control, then you're actually providing access to all the markets that customers want to use to sell their resources into. So you're putting your finger on the, exactly the challenge um, that we were trying to tackle with that study.
0: And what you said then um, in that report was that you actually needed quite big reform and reform quickly. Did the Finkel review kind of lay out a reform package as quick and as dramatic as? What you suggested needed to happen because the report really sort of said things need to change and quite dramatically within a few years. Otherwise, these technologies and these products like Sonnen and 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 other ones are going to get away.
2: They'll overrun the market, and then you'll end up with some of the issues that um, might create inequity between customers. And in effect, the concerns would be not so much even for the traditional utilities as the kind of. Uh, unintended cost shifting that might occur between customers. But what Finkel's report did, it set up a structure. It probably didn't put as much specificity in terms of every process and every time frame, but he certainly pointed to the need to harness those distributed resources. He drew on that CSIRO analysis that you were referring to, Giles. Um, And I think the other thing that uh, his report uh, got right was um, the need for um, cost reflective uh, pricing to send the signals um, to those new um, products that are coming in uh, and you're seeing the innovation there with the Sonnen um, uh, proposal so there's plenty of market readiness to respond I think.
1: We also saw the Energia proposal for a um, individual customers to have a, a demand responsive tariff where, whereby they could agree to be cut off from the grid for some number of hours a year and get a lower price. I mean, associated with that, we've got the fact that customers with distributed resources might just want to send their electricity, you know, to the next door neighbour. So you need some kind of geographic pricing. But we don't really seem to be making any real progress in the real world on any of these things, do we? I mean, there's really no change coming forward in tariff structures. The same old regulatory processes are going through. The same old fights are going through between the networks and and, and the regulator. And the result is prices go up. Customers with distributed resources get a slightly unfair go at it and 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 that actually further encourages grid defection. I mean how are you actually going to get the a, a situation changed in the real world?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right um that this is the time is now we need urgent action. I have to say that on these issues of pricing reform networks and AER really strongly align. The AER is Um, administering these rule changes that were made that require networks to introduce cost-reflective prices. And the AER is encouraging networks to come back with assignment models that that move customers onto those cost-reflective tariffs as quickly as possible and get the signal through to the retailer. Where the problem's coming is you've had um, state governments, despite agreeing to some of this, you've seen state governments like Victoria preventing those changes from happening. understandably because they want to make sure that customers are protected, but the kind of delays they're putting in mean that you might see uh, the, the cake becomes baked, that you get these cross-subsidies getting baked in um, because we move too slowly to get the signal to the retailer. And that's the other thing, I guess, is that, Retailers have got a lot more tools now to manage their profile of input costs. They're they're using virtual power stations like the AGL model. So it is probably the right time to be making sure retailers are seeing a signal to help reduce um, pressure at peak demand times.
0: Uh, And of course, um, John, um, your your members would also like to be able to create virtual power stations and and put some storage um, into the grid. And there's a bit of controversy about the ring fencing guidelines. And I know there's been a few exemptions made in South Australia and Victoria and possibly even Western Australia about um, so they can actually do a few trials and, and whatever. Um, how important is this for you guys, for, for, for the networks? Um, the argument from the retailer is that the networks can't be trusted to use the weight of the assets to um, extract a competitive advantage um, on, these, um, on, the, on, on, on these installations. Although sort of intuitively, you would think that um, having storage in a network may help extract extractive value
1: you know retailers are so trustworthy over to you john <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, look, that's it. And, and and i'm very happy for you to have another surf back to the retailers over their wholesale pricing because some of your members have been and um but look uh, let's go to the ring fencing first <laughs> well,
2: but let's put to one side the irony of retailers uh talking about competition given what we're seeing in reviews going on at the moment about um the kind of um lack of competition, lack of real competition occurring in some segments of the market. So I'll put that to one side, happy to talk about it if you guys would like to. But on that issue, it's a really valid issue for um, policymakers to deal with, to make sure that there's no way that networks can be providing the monopoly service and somehow participating unfairly in energy markets. And from a network sector point of view, we're not looking to create a position where networks can be... Um, playing in energy markets and bidding in using those resources into energy markets um, through the network entity. But if you think about um, what networks can use, particularly battery storage for, but there's other forms of storage too, like hot water, they can be a key tool to avoid building traditional poles and wires um, which is what everyone's been trying to encourage networks to do for say the last five to seven years um, and and the the gold plating debate that's been there has been trying to encourage networks to think about innovative solutions that avoid poles and wires. So when we look at... So tell me how
0: hot... Yeah, you so go. So just... No, no, tell, tell me about hot water and, um, and and how... What would that look like to the consumer or what would that look like on the, on, on the network? You, you, you're dealing with hot water too, to just yeah. stop building more poles and wires.
2: Yeah, it's... Um, it, it's the example of the way um, networks that are trying to use battery storage, it's the example hot water is the example of the storage system we've had on the grid for uh, decades. In Queensland they've got fleets of uh, off-peak hot water systems that are effectively controlled by the network through ripple control to reduce pressure at times of peak demand and now they're in Queensland trying to well, they are doing trials using those hot water systems as solar sponges to soak up surplus solar during the middle of the day and they're effectively using what is a storage asset um, in a controlled way across fleets of um, of systems. That's, that is really what you, we will all see happening with really um, innovative uses of battery storage and that's the kind of um, orchestration that everyone's excited about but we've already been doing it for some time with hot water systems and it's been the network business that's had the relationship with customers so from our point of view absolutely we, we've got to avoid networks dominating competitive markets but by the same token you don't want to see a situation where the solution for the network is to build poles and wires rather than use the kind of
1: models they've been using for years So I I might just jump in and point out that this is where South Australia is, again, very backward compared to Queensland. I never thought I'd say anything could be backwards compared to Queensland, but here we go, Uh, where where South Australia has a a power price peak spike every midnight midnight when the hot water systems uh, on on the second tariff kick in, and that's because they're metering. Uh, systems don't allow them to do the same sort of things that they do in Queensland and shift it to the middle of the day or even even adjust it dynamically with the right information systems to when the wind is blowing. Uh, so there's so much more scope within the with better control of the existing system and, and you know I see metering in South Australia as, as being a key enabler. Yeah I couldn't agree more yeah.
0: David so what's your next steps then, on um, John, for um, for finger Review? What, what, are you, what are you hoping to happen now? Or what do you think must happen now? Because there's been almost like a bit of a gridlock. We've sort of the, the debate came in and it seemed to come to a halt when we started talking about whether we're going to have coal or no coal-fired power stations. Presumably what you're hoping is that the COAG adopts the other 49 recommendations that um, have been passed on and, and, and gets cracking on some of those energy security and other issues.
2: Yeah, and look, we were really pleased to see the federal government at least deliver a commitment to the 49 out of the 50. We think Finkel's package is very good. And apart from the clean energy target, which, um, and certainty on carbon policy, which is too big to ignore. It, it is something that we can't just say, um, let's accept the rest of the 49 and forget about carbon policy because we know carbon policy does um, drive a lot of other outcomes in the energy system. But apart from that issue, the other 49 recommendations have so many important things in it. So one just take one example. He's got a framework in there that builds on overseas models to see much more strategic planning of transmission networks to encourage renewable energy zones. And David wrote a piece, I think, for a New Economy in the last week or so that that picked up on this issue and the fact that Australia's probably had a less planned approach to that. And so you'd really want to make sure COAG Energy Council's getting on with those really important um, Recommendations, even if um, we have to go through another cycle on
0: carbon. Yeah, D- D- David, why don't you just sort of repeat some of the things that you made, there for those who hadn't actually read it.
1: Well, the, the basic point is that I, I, you know, as much as we like distributed energy, as much as we want to have energy islands uh, s- self-supporting as possible, as much as you think storage is better placed in the households and in businesses around the fringes of the grid, that's that's where it's most economic. You still need a very really strong transmission backbone. Uh, And I personally think the uh, expansion of renewable energy is going to end up being cramped by the lack of transmission capacity. And and the fact is it takes a lot longer because of planning and easements and all the process you've got to go go through to get the transmission done. And so my thought is that the uh, transmission uh, planning framework and the RIT test are just not are too slow and don't take a broad enough vision in the way that Finkel is suggesting and in the way that um, uh, Texas in the ERCOT zone actually proved how successful that could be when they took, uh, you know, wind energy from about two and a half gigawatts in Texas in about 2006 to about 20 gigawatts today and, and more on the way. Uh, John, I can't, leaving that to one side, John, the other side of things not directly related to Finkel was is, is the... Freidenberg's uh, proposal to abolish some of the rights of appeal to the that the networks have from AR decisions to the Australian Competition Tribunal. I, yeah, I mean, the the Competition Tribunal has actually been supported by the courts. Uh, a lot of us think that networks have over-earned despite everything. But I just wondered what you thought about the legal, what what the networks are going to be doing about this.
2: Yeah. Well, look, it is a it has been a really profound concern, as you'd expect, for networks and investors. I mean, just to put the, the process in context, the, the Commonwealth and the Coag Energy Ministers have been running a process for 12 months to review the regime. They put out public statements saying they were going to reform the limited merits re- review process and bring it back for decision in July. And then the Commonwealth has announced unilaterally that it's going to introduce federal legislation that abolishes the, the regime, that Investors have been seeing as part of the regulatory framework, and which they've been going around to overseas um, debt and equity providers talking about the rigour of the framework, and now the Commonwealth's unilaterally abolishing it. So, in terms of the process by which energy policy and regulatory frameworks are administered in Australia, it's, it's a real shock to the system. There's the Australian Energy Market Agreement, which is how all states and territories in the Commonwealth agree to manage the regulation and the law explicitly says that no state or or federal government will do anything unilaterally, and yet here we are with the Commonwealth announcing it uh, in a press conference without notice to the other state governments or to the industry. It was a bit of a shock.
1: That's how energy policy seems to be made at a federal level these days. I mean if it's not uh, you know someone talking to the cabinet about coal fire generation. It's uh, Turnbull announcing one day Snowy 2, you know, uh, to, the, to a market that hadn't heard about it before. It's very hard to see how these, I mean, I must say, it's hard to see how these federal announcements, whether they're good or bad, uh, can be properly aligned with the proper planning process that you're supposed to go through. And I think it indicates the lack of agreement and lack of alignment uh, on, on a vision. And I wish I wish we could get to that to start with.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think whether you're an investor in solar and storage at a household level or a, a renewable entrant or even you know one of the big three thinking about what you do with your generation fleet or network business, there's just unnecessary cost that will be incurred in, in a capital intensive industry if the regulatory framework is decided by press releases and election cycles. It's... It's something that we've had a stronger degree of bipartisanship and, and stronger degree of stability in the past, and it now seems to, um, in the panic of community concern driven by price increases, um, we are at danger of throwing some of the baby out with the bathwater, I think.
0: Mm. John, just um, just a final question, just getting back to that CSIRO vision and what you were talking about network prices, and um, I guess one of the issues raised in the and battery product launch um, you sort of said that over time with the proper policies and the proper rules and mechanisms then uh, network costs could fall by 30% and um, I probably agree that they probably need to considering the um, the new technologies which are coming into the market. I'm just wondering what's going to be happening in the short to medium term because what we're seeing, we saw it in WA, we're seeing it elsewhere, we're seeing rises in some of those fixed charges and um, it was interesting that Sonnen actually said um, that for consumers like me who live in regional New South Wales, and on the essential energy um, tariff, um, which is like $550 a year fixed charges, um, they can't deal with me because the fixed charges are too much. I'm just wondering, do you think that those fixed charges are going to continue to rise in the short to medium term? And can they afford to rise? Because I think it's it's going to trigger some unwanted results if they do
2: yeah so one of the problems we've got with that and david said earlier metering is key and he's absolutely right one of the problems we've got with the kind of meters we've got 70 percent of australian customers have just got a a old spinning accumulation meter that doesn't measure when the energy is used and so that means you've really only got two levers to play with a, a fixed charge or a variable charge and step variable charges based on volume the problem with that is that does nothing to signal the actual cost of the user's use of energy and and what kind of cost that drives into the network. And and as you guys know, it, that's really the 40 hours a year when you've got a peak demand event, or 20 to 40 hours a year when you've got a peak demand event, that really drives network costs. So what, we're, what that means, it comes back to where we were talking about before, the need for really getting on with network tariff reform and sending a signal about the the demand charge and including a demand charge in the cost for customers. That means there is some real ability for the customer to reduce a portion of their bill through that demand component if they can reduce their their peak demand use. And that means for all of the technology providers, the Sonnens, the Reposits, those innovators coming in with these optimization engines, they can respond to that signal and help that customer rebalance their use of energy in ways that actually lowers the network bill. That's the way of the future, and and I think that's the thing we've got to get on with in the next few years.
1: We're running out of time, Giles, but I I also think that there are more fundamental reforms possible, like uh, most of the cost of networks is actually fixed at the time the network is built. That's when the vast amount of lifetime cost of a network is incurred. So I personally think when, when, when new networks are built and house, connect, houses are connected, it, it should be, it might, you might think about factoring it into the price of the house, it's just that the cost of being connected to the network and you reduce the RAB and the future growth in, in prices that way. And over time, you, you make more of the network cost variable
0: and, and, and you know, provide some other options. Anyhow, we've been going for a while. Indeed, indeed. And thank you very much. Look, um, just uh, looking at um, some of the things co- upcoming, um, I'm still waiting for an announcement on the energy storage, uh, sorry, the battery storage tender from South Australia. I thought it was going to be in the last week. It doesn't seem to have been. Maybe they had Wyala and Arium to think about, but they better get cracking if they're going to get that built by December the 1st, which is when they wanted to install that battery storage and when AEMO, uh, the market operator, s- suggested what they will really need to have it to get through the, um, the challenges of next summer. Um, We've also got a COAG Energy Minister's meeting coming up in the next couple of weeks. David, anything else on your agenda in the next week? What are you looking out for?
1: Uh, Not in the next week, but the week after that, of course, is the CEC Conference, which is uh, one of the biggest conferences of the year. And um, so ongoing
0: news, We'll all gather then. What about you, John? Any any, any upcoming stuff? Our our
2: real focus is on that COAG Energy Council, which is uh, next Friday, the 14th of July. And let's hope that we do get some action on Finkel.
0: And what are you going to expect from that? Maybe um, a go ahead for the Energy Security Board, maybe approval to put some of those other recommendations in place?
2: I would hope that we'd actually see uh, an announcement potentially of appointees. They need an independent chair and a deputy chair, so a great outcome would be seeing COAG Energy Council endorsing the Finkel recommendations and uh, appointing someone to lead the establishment
0: would well, be interesting to see who they could come up with with um with that guys look thank you very much for joining us um apologies to listeners if the sound quality wasn't fantastic i will promise to bring my microphone next time and uh john once again thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me and uh, thank you david once again cheers okay thanks everyone bye-bye